Some of you may have noticed that our website went down last month. We got attacked by malware and we're trying to rebuild a new one from scratch. Our episodes are always available at all the regular places and our content's always free at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. If you can spare a couple of bucks while you're there, you can help us make a new website that'll suck less. Well, it is fucking boiling hot in here again, and the fan is roaring like a jet engine, and I, because I love you listeners, I'm going to shut that shit down and just roast. So, you're going to hear me slowly melt down over the next 20 minutes. Um, I hope you enjoy that. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 26, Artificial Energy. On last month's show, we looked at the history of the brain disease model of addiction. That's the idea that drug users, like me, have a chronic relapsing brain disease. The reward system in our brains is wired wrong, and that's why we always want to get high. It's expressed in the form of compulsive behavior, but it's a brain disease. It's a disease of the brain. Prolonged drug use changes the brain in fundamental and long-lasting ways, and that matters not because it's interesting, but because it tells you why you can't just cut it out. Over the years, I started to suspect that this was bullshit. I started to wonder if maybe it wasn't my brain that was fucked. Maybe it's the world that's fucked. Maybe it's something about the way society's organized. So on today's show, I want to talk about a different model of addiction. Apparently, academics have a name for this, the social adaptation model of addiction. This is the idea that people take drugs because they're useful, that there's something about the world, not us, that makes drugs more appealing, rational, and sometimes even necessary. This is true for lots of different drugs, but on today's show, I want to look specifically at crystal meth. I'm only going to try meth once. I'm, I'm not going to be like that guy. Hey, look, I'm only going to smoke meth once. I'm not going to be like that guy. Look, I'm just going to shoot up just, just once. All right, I'm not going to be like that guy. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be like that guy. Despite nasty drug war propaganda like this, meth use has increased massively in North America over the past decade. In Vancouver, we call meth side, or sometimes jib. You can smoke it or shoot it or snort it. Either way, crystal meth speeds you up. It makes you feel alert when you're exhausted or attentive when you're bored. Meth can help you push your body forward when you really should be asleep. For that reason, crystal meth is especially useful if you got a grind to get by. It's especially useful to people like Sean Dope. So you always find what you need? Like you're I, never stressed? Oh, I wake up with pretty much zero money every day. Yeah. But I make, you know, a couple hundred bucks a day. It's expensive to live downtown. I do have a bit of a habit, but... Yeah. But, uh... What's your habit? Uh, I do jibbing down. 
And now with the fentanyl, it's like you need it like every couple hours for Christ's sake, it's horrible. Crackdown producer Alex DeBoer and I met Sean Dope on a warm June night. Sean's a tall guy in his late 40s. He's got a shaved head and he's wearing his work clothes, khaki protective Carhartt overalls and sneakers. With his keychain and flashlight, he looks a bit like a maintenance guy, but Sean's a binner. Most people think of a binner as someone searching through dumpsters for bottles and cans, but this ain't Sean. Sean calls himself king of the binners. I can't even handle it. Handle it. Sound of can. Yeah. Never taken a can back in my life. Mm. Not that I'm too cool for it, but but yeah, I am. <laughs> Sean's after big ticket items. He walks or bikes through Vancouver's back alleys twice a day, focusing mostly on the city's affluent areas. He's confident we're gonna score big tonight, and he's eager to show us the ropes. But he cautions that some of his tricks are proprietary. And uh, where, where are we going today? Um, we're just doing a little route downtown. Uh, we're, uh, well, I'm not gonna, I don't like to tell. Yeah, don't, yeah, people, don't give it away. Because it's yeah. kind of a trade secret, you know, in these little spots I have. So like I would just say, we're kind of walking in an alley we're behind some businesses. We're walking randomly downtown, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And we're going to go see what the fat cats are throwing away. Excellent. The truth is, we're not walking randomly at all. This route is part of what Sean calls his algorithm, a methodical and time-tested strategy to find the best garbage in town. Um, over the years, I've written down where and when things are there in a little book. Right. And uh, then they're there at the same time every year again. Like, I can even walk into the store and look at what, what creams, like say the Lancome creams, when, they go, when they're going towards the date, right? Oh, I see. And then I know right after that. Like, these stores downtown don't have any place to stash stuff. It goes right from the shelf right out to the garbage. Every day, Sean has the same goal, to find stuff he can either sell at the street market on Hastings Street or to trade with his neighbors back at his SRO. If he finds the right kind of stuff, he can avoid dope sickness and get by. Sean tells us he's confident that we'll find something really valuable. You won't believe the stuff bougie stores throw out, he says. Chanel makeup, New Balance kicks, Victoria's Secret lingerie, coach bags. He says he even once found a bag of jewelry. But it can be a bit of a crapshoot. Even though stores throw out plenty of luxury items, they sometimes destroy them first. Certain brands like Tory Burch sandals or flip-flops are $500. If they were to not cut them up and give them to the poor people, then everybody in the East End would be walking around in $500 flip-flops. And then that would devalue the brand, huh. right? Exactly. So I understand that, but... So they cut them up? They slash them all up to shit. So yeah. they, they literally pay somebody to cut up nice shit. They pay for it to get packed away, the garbage, right? And they pay someone to watch the bin so it doesn't get broken into it. Unbelievable. Like, that's first class garbage, right? No, that, yeah. That's absolutely ridiculous. It's disgusting even, you know, like... There you go. Sean approaches a dumpster, but it's locked with a sturdy metal bar. The city started requiring businesses to lock up their trash over 20 years ago. That means, in order to open most of Vancouver's dumpsters, you need to collect around a dozen keys. The best way to get them, Sean explains, is to bribe trash collectors with beer or cash. So can you just uh, describe what you got in your hand there? Like 15 keys that I've collected over 20 years. So you're looking through for a specific key. Do you know which one goes to which yeah, one? Yeah, number five. Yesterday I found 200 bottles of perfume here. Sean looks inside. 
There's no perfume in there today. In fact, there's not really anything. And so he keeps moving. So now we're at a blue dumpster. Yeah. Hmm. And you don't care if uh, security people or... Whatever. No, they all know me now. Yeah, we got some good stuff here. Um, probably... Oh, yeah. What do you got? Sean jumps into the dumpster and sifts through a sea of clear plastic wrapping. He finds a can of cat food and a wilting orchid. He pockets the cat food to give to his neighbor. Sean also finds some cardboard boxes, which should be in the recycling bin. He breaks them down and hops out of the dumpster and puts the cardboard in the correct bin. He locks everything up and sprays his hands with sanitizer. Well, I noticed that you're um, you're quick. Like we never stay anywhere more than no, a minute. I mean, no. And, and, uh, and if I find good things, I'll uh, I'll go through them somewhere else because I don't want them to know that the bags are ripped open, right? Right. But I make sure that it ends up in a garbage walk and you know it doesn't be flailed up the street up, you know, because then that would would come back to them, right? Binning is really stigmatized. People who bin are constantly being watched and judged. Maybe that's why Sean keeps telling us we're about to find something really good. Or why he wants me to know that this work is environmentally beneficial, that he's saving perfectly good stuff from the landfill. I ask him about his life before all of this, how he wound up binning in the first place. He tells me he grew up with his parents in the suburbs. My parents were having a rough marriage or whatever. And I was always in shit. I was a scapegoat for everything in my family. I don't remember one solid thing that I actually got in shit for. Like, but my dad hit me a couple times and then I was scared of him. So how could you ever tell the truth when you're scared of somebody, right? Yeah. I'm just gonna hand sanitizer here. And I'm out of smoke. Sean was put into foster care at age 13, but he says he ran away after just a couple years in the system. When Sean was 15, and still in high school, he lived alone. He dealt weed to pay the rent. I haven't talked to my parents. I don't even know if my parents are dead or alive right now. Like my mom changed her first and last name, just changed it to something random, you know? And uh, I can't get a hold of her. My sister got married, I don't know her last name. And uh, my dad, I don't know, obviously doesn't give a shit enough to, to try to find me. And he's wealthy as fuck and has the time to, if he wanted to, he could. Eventually, Sean developed a dope habit. At first, it didn't stop him from working retail. He even ran a small clothing business with his buddies for a while. But I can tell you from personal experience, this is a hard balance to maintain. If you run out of money, you gotta work dope sick. You're always just one crisis away from losing your job. And once that happens, you can find yourself relying on less formal work like binning. This kind of thing is happening to more and more people in Vancouver. Vancouver, gateway to British Columbia and to Canada. A city as cosmopolitan as you will find. Vancouver used to be a city of longshore workers, miners and fishers. People were making bank and many lived and partied on the downtown east side. I remember drinking with loggers at the Balmoral Pub or with tugboat captains at the Ivanhoe. No matter what your interest, what your taste, you will find it here, somewhere in this world in a city. But all that changed. Good evening. Finance Minister Paul Martin says Canada's budget deficit is far worse than expected. Martin says somehow the deficit has to be brought under control, and he says he's open to suggestions. That 
is the reality with which we, as a new government, must now deal. And we shall. In the 90s, Canada's federal Liberal Party made sweeping cuts that would have made Reagan and Thatcher proud. And that was just the start. Decades of globalization, automation, union-busting and austerity decimated Canada's social safety net and created the far more brutal country we live in today. Amidst these waves of austerity, I started to see more binners and squeegee kids in the city. Because even when you don't have a job, you still gotta grind somehow. And no one gets to not work. If you have to work in the informal economy, binning is lower risk, but also lower reward. It's safer than dealing, boosting, or sex work, but it can be humiliating, and you're still probably gonna get hassled by the cops. Just like with other informal jobs, all the pressure falls on you, the worker. There's no sick pay, no vacation time, no benefits. What you find is yours, but sometimes you're just gonna come up empty. Not recycled, you know what I mean? Like, they're all recycled using the cardboard bin they're supposed to. I watch Sean spring in and out of the dumpsters. I can see how physically taxing this work is. And he's been at it for a while. But he hasn't found anything valuable yet. Nothing he could sell or trade for dope. So he's gotta keep going. Is there a relationship between jib and binning? I don't know, it's not like a glamorous job, right? Yeah. So, well, maybe use it to get over the, the, you know, uninhibit yourself a bit, maybe? We make a pit stop at an overdose prevention site. Sean grabs some tinfoil. It's time to recharge. We sit down in an alley, and Sean has a hoot. It's all mixed in with my... When you put down in a jib together, and you smoke it, it lasts like 10, 10 times longer. The jib could burn fast, down could burn fast, but when you put them together, it burns like 10 or 20 times longer. Crazy. We've been binning with Sean for a few hours now, and I'm starting to feel bad. It's clear we're slowing him down. And maybe I'm just bad luck. Sean's only found a pair of sneakers, socks, and a garbage bag full of just expired salads and sandwiches. They're unopened and perfectly edible. But you can tell he's hoping for more. Sean decides to take us off route to the poshest part of downtown. It feels a bit like a Hail Mary to save the night. He takes us behind a drugstore, finds a bin, and unlocks it. Oh yeah, we took this off the other road. A fucking million candy bars. Nothing. It's tanning oil? Yeah. This whole bin's full of shit. Just, I knew we'd hit something. I told you. Look, makeup, fucking nothing wrong with it. Look at all this shit. Shit that people fucking pay large for. A battery charger, tubes of cosmetics, dozens of chocolate bars. Sean organizes his spoils neatly on the dumpster lid. Yeah. What do you want for a candy bar, Sean? Nothing. You have one. Help yourself. And like, I can get dope all night long at any time of the night with this shit. Yeah. You know, well, if I needed to. So like I said, we'll find a thousand bucks for the shit before we leave. Yeah. I told you, man. You gotta look around, you know? I eat a coffee crisp as Sean sits down to rest and smoke. The job's not done. He's still got to sell or trade all this shit. But he's got more than he can haul home on his own. So he throws a few items back into the bin. A Lamborghini roars past, 
then an Escalade. It's 12.30. Sean calls it a night. And this is Vancouver, a city baking yet again tonight in a record-smashing heat wave, one that's being called not just historic, but dangerous. A heat dome has set up over British Columbia, fueled by a ridge of high pressure, trapping intense heat beneath it. On Sunday, BC shattered 60 heat records. 719 people died suddenly. The wait time for an ambulance, hours. Paramedics overworked. A catastrophic fire that has virtually obliterated the village of Lytton, BC, the same community that earlier this week set an all-time heat record in this country. About a thousand people fled the town and nearby reserves when the order came into effect Wednesday at 6 p.m. A couple of weeks ago, I was overheated and everything felt ominous. I met Crackdown senior producer Sam Fenn in a park to try to cool down and shake off this feeling of doom. Okay, I'm going to sit closer. I'm just going to get my bearings. I think we should just drink some beer for a minute. I agree. Do you know what is the temperature? Um, it feels like it's cooler now. Yesterday and Monday it was up like setting records for Vancouver, I think. You know, into the mid and high 30s, feeling like 40 something with the humidex. So it was hotter. It was hotter in Vancouver than in Miami, apparently, during this heat wave. Yeah, and I was just like, I can't even. I don't even know how many layers deep of clusterfucks we're in now. You know, there's housing overdose, pandemic, heat whatever this is, heat apocalypse, like, it's just like they keep stacking up. You know, I think the first time I really started to understand how people are using uh, stimulants in the context of this show, like, um, you know, people use for fun, obviously, all the time, but people also use to just stay alert and stay plugged in on the job. And, um, it was when I was in the Tenderloin in San Francisco a long time ago. What age are you? Like, and how did you, like, what brought you to San Francisco? Like, I don't even, I don't know this story at all. I was 19. I was just like, fuck, I don't know what brings anybody anywhere. I was just washing around, you know, like, blew up and down the I-5 when it was easier to get across the border, you know, on coastal cities. You know, punk kids maybe playing in bands, but also, like, uh, kids who were dope fiends and doing sex work and just, um... You know, in different states of, like, fucked upness and alienation, California was full of all these earthquake-damaged buildings, so we squatted them. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's good times. <laughs> you know, this was... Uh, there was a really great uh, punk scene in Berkeley out of this place called the Gilman Street Project. Bands like uh, Jawbreaker and, um, well, I guess most, most famously Green Day, but also Operation Ivy and Rancid and... Um, yeah, like a lot of good bands came out of there and they had a really good scene, like a very grassroots kind of political intentional scene. And I was a volunteer at that place. You named a bunch of bands there, but I think the one that you named that I just knowing you, I think you connect to the most there is Operation Ivy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell? Okay. So what is that? Is that ska? What is that? I think Jawbreaker is probably my, one of my favorite bands. Is that like shoegaze? I mean, not really. (laughs) (laughs) It's just punk. I would die to the top. 
looking back on it now, I just felt that really deep sense of homesickness for a place that I didn't know where it was. So you kind of are weirdly searching, maybe physically or geographically in the world, but also searching in substances and with people, and you're trying to just figure out how to how to patch over that hole that you got in here. Anyway, so the so you're hanging out in uh, in and around Berkeley and the Tenderloin and that kind of thing, right? And um, and what are you doing? Like like you're what are you doing to make money and stuff at this time? I mean, we have all these really um, nickel and dime kind of scams and operations, right? Like one time, me and my me and my running partner. Um, we uh, we squatted this warehouse, and it was full of a shipping container of wicker uh, turtle baskets and rug beaters, like little baskets that looked like a turtle. Thousands, just th- endless thousands of these things. And so we would take them out on the street and try to sell them. Like, you could get a matched set of both of these useless things for a buck. And we would have to ask 200 people to get one person to stop. And it was super inefficient. So we take a pile of these things out in the morning and eventually we just get sick of it and abandon them. So we abandoned piles of like wicker turtle baskets and rug beaters around the city of San Francisco. (laughs) And uh, sometimes we would go to Fisherman's Wharf where the tourists were. And, uh, you know, we were both pretty punk rock. So people were shocked by that shit back then. Uh, It wasn't quite a cliche yet, kind of on the way. So there'd be people from the Midwest who want to, you know, have their picture taken with these weirdo looking people. And we would ask them for a few bucks for that. And that was another extremely slow way to make money. So like you were like Spider-Man in Times Square or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we, we did professionalize the operation. We got, because we got a few more people and then we got kids, other kids to go like shake people down for the money. Say, "Hey, hey, I saw you taking a picture. You want to donate to the cause? And, you know, so. It was slow and painful and a little humiliating, but yeah. Let's just say um, those are the fun ones that I can make a nice uh, little anecdote about. But there's other ones too um, that are kind of darker, and uh, I I'll probably tell you about them later, like different episodes or something like that. But I mean, you can see in in some of the things you got to do for money that need to stay awake and stay alert and use the stimulants. Okay, so as you're running these schemes. You're 19, you and your your running mate, your buddy, right? You're 19, and there's somebody a little bit older who's in the scene, basically. Yeah, this guy, uh, we'll just call him Prince. You know, he was uh, he was quite well known, really like outspoken, gregarious guy. Uh, he, he was always on the corner of um, Polk and O'Farrell in the in the Tenderloin, and uh, it's kind of his corner. He worked the block there. He he was. Uh, you know, he's, he was like uh, pretty much in charge of the place. And uh, so he showed people the ropes around there. If you were to walk by, if you were to walk by um, Prince on any given day, like what, what would he have looked like? Like what, what, did, what was his vibe? So he's like king of the hustlers, right? So he's working the sex trade. And uh, he's standing on the corner. Um, maybe he's got a shirt open or if it's warm, no shirt. And he's got like long, like flowing brown, blonde brown locks going down. And he's just, uh, he's smoking like he's in a movie. You know, he's leaning against the wall or the trash can or something like that. Every time you look across the street, he's not like 
bending down and tying his shoe or looking for something on the ground. He's like in a perfectly posed position. Um, and he's, you know, showing people, look, I'm, I'm working here. You know? And kind of like, and, and charismatic and like good looking too, right? Like that's oh, yeah. the vibe. Yeah. yeah, he's definitely, he's a gorgeous guy. He's a beautiful looking guy. And, and the way that you describe him, he seems like he's like, he's, he knows what he's doing. Like, like maybe you guys are 19, maybe a little newer at shit. And this is like a guy who can tell you, look, I've been around. This is how it goes. Yeah. He's very confident. You know, he's just like self-possessed and confident. So tell me about what, what kind of drugs Prince would use. So uh, like a lot of people on Polk street, he was just a stimulant fueled motherfucker. Like he was just constantly, you know, he'd be in these poses, but never very long. You know, he'd always be flicking between his favorite, uh, like leaning on the garbage can or being against the wall or talking some line of bullshit to somebody who's walking down the street or, or whatever. You know, he was, he was very, like, you could get tired just watching that. Uh, so yeah, he was like just 24 seven like that. And, and so it was stimulants and he, he told us, you know, you guys, you know, like dope fiends got to get your shit together because you're over there like knotted out or slouching away, right? We weren't, we weren't pretty like him. We were skinny and slouchy and lanky and um, not confident. And so he's kind of like, you got to, you got to get the, get your shit right. You know, like this is not how, it, how it's done. What do you think Prince's, like, influence on you was at this time? Well, he's a competent guy. Oh, wait, sorry. As you answer, could we maybe drink the other beer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about the ways. First, maybe we'll start with the ways in which um, using using side, like, did work for you at this time. And you're like, well, what, what could it help with? Well, you know, um, we were squatting earthquake damaged buildings, but the police hated this and they were chucking us out all the time. So sometimes you would be just out in the middle of the night and you'd just be like with your stuff and you'd be like, didn't have anywhere to go. And, and that would be an obvious thing to do. You just stay up. Um, it's, it's like there are days where it just enabled the work to get done, you know, like I don't, I, people don't realize, but just having a dope habit is a huge fucking job, you know, like you've... I mean, where you have a stable connection, that's good, but you sometimes have to go and find the dope. It can be sometimes elusive, particularly when the police are really cracking down on people. Um, you have to get the money up for the dope. Uh, when all the equipment is illegal, you have to go get the equipment, find the equipment somewhere, you know. Um, so it is a 24-7 job to do that. And so, yeah, sometimes you use that to do the actual job. Like, I... I found sometimes I had used uh, crystal meth to just, like, do the main job of getting the heroin, you know? It, I know it sounds kind of ridiculous and counterintuitive, but I, I think a bunch of people do that. I think a lot of people have done that. Talk to me about, uh, give me an example of what didn't work, like a day where the uh, stimulants didn't work for you back then. Yeah, that's a much stronger feeling for me, for sure. I mean, so... After being awake for several days on on stimulants, I I went back. I was just like feeling so fucked up. I went back to the squat and uh, I just had this uh, terrible paranoia. Like I just thought, oh fuck, we're gonna get raided by the cops because you do sometimes um, as a drug user get <laughs> raided by the cops or a squatter. 
but I went to the second floor. You know, we, me and my running partner had our sleeping bags kind of in the middle of the living room on the first floor. There was this um, really saggy-ass old piano in the corner, you know, like it, it was kind of like buckling. And, uh, and so I went upstairs and I was just like looking out the windows into the street. And as night fell, I was convinced that there was going to be this raid on the house, you know, and it was going to involve like police all pulling up at the same time and cop cars and radioing to each other and helicopters and searchlights and all the shit you see from the movies. I really thought that was happening. So every time I heard something on the street, like someone's screen door, a little chain metal fence, you know, shutting or something down the block, I was like, oh, that's it, that's it, you know. And then I'd tell myself, I'd be like, no, you're just you know, you're just one loser in an abandoned building. No one's organizing a raid for you. And I would be like, that's right, that's right, of course, of course. And then I would forget, and I'd get convincing, and I just couldn't even hold the reality that this really was not likely to happen for more than a few seconds. And, you know, by the time my running partner got home, I was like pacing the floor. I was like, shut up, shut up, man, shut up, get your head down, hit the floor, hit the floor. And he's like, what? And he's, you know, like he's down on the floor, we're on our hands, and he's just like, what, what, what is it, what is it? Who's in here, what's going on? I'm like, it's the cops, man. It's the, it's the FBI, it's probably the CIA. You know, it's, it's, can you hear the helicopter? He's like, I don't hear anything. He's like, what in the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what are you doing? You know, and he, he kind of talked me down. If the whole world's a machine, you know, a machine like producing products or producing whatever, if the whole world's a machine and it keeps speeding up production as the years go by, then we have to, like, we either fall off the assembly line or we have to somehow keep up. And that's what a lot of people are forced to do. And the assembly line is everywhere, right? Because when you look at Sean Dope, um, he's part of an assembly line that extends all over the world. It starts in the Pacific Rim uh, with consumer products that are made in China or Taiwan or whatever, Japan. They go by container ship to the port of Vancouver, like just over there. Um, they go into people's houses or stores and then very quickly into dumpsters. Sean gets them and he sells them just a few blocks away from where the port is. You know, So he's part of this worldwide production chain. And as that gets leaner and meaner and those products get cheaper and they go into the dumpster quicker and all that happens faster, and the dumpsters get locked up and the cops are more around in the neighborhoods, all the pressure just comes onto Sean. And so Sean or, or binners like Sean, it's just like, you got to keep up with that. I mean, so far we mostly talked about like side and productivity and society. Um, but do you think that this is true? Like this theory, this different theory of drug use, do you think it's true of like uh, down as well? Well, I think, I think people use drugs for a lot of reasons. People use drugs because they're fun, uh, because bad shits happen that you want to self-medicate over, but also because of these big kind of social forces. And it's not just stimulants. It's, it's all kind of drugs. And so we're looking at like a little slice of that right now, you know, stimulants and certain kind of economic activities. But yeah, I think people, people use drugs for all kinds of reasons too. Um, you know, accommodate the increased heavy demands of the world. Yeah. All right. That's good. I don't know what else there is to say. 
This beer sucks though, this one. Yeah, this one does too. <laughs> Wait, bro, non-alcoholic beer. What? How dare you? <laughs> These masks look like the worst we're eating at. Yeah. yeah it's just, it, you can hear the fan roaring. It's the only fan in oh, the Oh, shit. Room. That's the fan. Jesus. Can you hear it? Uh, we, we could earlier. We could earlier, though. <laughs> you assumed it was a Cessna or something. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> it's about it's about 35 or 37 in this room right now, degrees. So, oh, Jesus, uh, man. It's, no, it's all right. I'm, I'm good. I, just the apocalypses keep coming. Just bring them on. Fucking end times. Fair. All right, let's do this thing. Cool. Ryan, it's been a minute. Can you introduce yourself for anybody who might not already know? Sure. I'm uh, Ryan McNeil. I'm an assistant professor in the Yale School of Medicine and director of harm reduction research with the Yale Program in Addiction Medicine. And you are also the intellectual director and co-creator of this um, fantastic enterprise. So um, welcome back. Uh, how did you get interested in, in studying evictions? So it seems incredibly timely right now. So this goes back several years to when there was a squat in Oppenheimer Park. A standoff is brewing between a group of camping protesters and the city of Vancouver. Just over a dozen tents have been erected in Oppenheimer Park. Decades of neoliberal policies and austerity had caused a full-scale housing crisis in Vancouver. SRO owners were kicking out residents so they could renovate the rooms, jack up the rents, and attract slightly wealthier tenants. In 2016 alone, 500 of these cheap rooms were lost, and that meant people had no choice but to sleep outside. Ryan wanted to know what all of these evictions were doing to people's drug use. How would people adapt? We were going out in the community to, to find and, and do interviews with people who had been evicted within the last 60 days. And so these were primarily people who had been evicted out of um, nonprofit and private single room occupancy hotels in the neighborhood. Ryan and his team got 56 drug users to join the study. At first, he and his colleagues conducted what they call go-along interviews. They had participants show them around the neighborhood, telling stories about significant locations. The researchers recorded the interviews, coded them, and plugged everything into a digital mapping program. Then they followed up six months later. Nearly every person that we, we talked to as part of that study had been evicted primarily into homelessness and was then just really struggling, especially, you know, those first few weeks to get by. You know, if you think about it, like you're, you're being evicted out of a 10 by 10 room, really only able to take with you what you can carry or maybe throw into a cart. And, you know, that can be the things that tie you to, to family, to your past. These are your things that you want to protect. And one of those people you talked to was uh, a pseudonym, I guess, was Miranda. Do you remember Miranda? Yeah, I do. Um, can you read the, read the quote from her? For sure. So Miranda was a, a woman, and it is a pseudonym. Um, Miranda is mm -hmm. a woman who had participated in her study. You know, she said, you're afraid to fall asleep. When you have what little personal belongings you have with you, somebody's going to steal it. If they could take your shoes off your feet and have you not wake up, they would. And that you're, you know, 
while people would sometimes have things stolen, what they were most concerned about in the end was, is a city cleanup crew going to come by, toss everything that I have in the back of a truck and cart it off? This kind of thing is still common. In the morning, cops and city workers sweep through the downtown east side, cleaning up. That often means grabbing someone's bag or tent off the sidewalk and throwing it in the back of a truck. Just a couple of months ago, they threw away a woman's suitcase. Inside was her medicine bag containing her recently deceased mother's ashes. It feels like I've lost her twice, she said. A VPD spokesman brushed it off, saying the police gave fair warning. There's another quote from a participant named Robin. Do you, uh, could you tell me about Robin? Yeah, so Robin's one of the, the folks in our study who was also engaged in sex work and, you know, primarily was someone who used opioids and, you know, was having to use other things as well in an effort to, to really just try to stay alert. And so she explained, I used a lot more when I get depressed, when I get evicted. It always feels bad, so I do a lot more binge. Going to work, being stoned, and being really careless about what I'm doing, especially late at night. I'm not thinking about what I'm doing when I'm jumping in someone's car. I've had one experience from that once, so I don't want that to happen again. Most of Ryan's participants had been evicted into homelessness, and everyone told him that after getting evicted, they started using drugs outside a lot more. People hid, out of shame and to avoid the cops, and many told Ryan they'd have to rush their hits. The participants also reported a lot more meth use, even people who'd never tried it before. In a later study, Ryan and his colleagues found that over a quarter of non-regular meth users relied on meth to get by in the weeks and months following an eviction. The participants told Ryan that meth was particularly useful for pushing the limits of human exhaustion. It let them stay up for days on end, and with nowhere to sleep, that was a gift. But of course, eventually the body fights back. The participants told Ryan these kinds of sleepless binges led to infections, periods of psychosis, and suicide attempts. If you think about being evicted, it's one of these all-encompassing events that happen in someone's lives that is hugely destabilizing, and that means that it affects how they, how they make money, where they buy drugs, who they buy drugs from, and all of these other things. People needed to use stimulants to be able to stay awake and alert and safe following eviction. So you say that stimulant use is part of an adaptive strategy to social or structural violence, like to evictions, to cops, to clean up, to trying to stay hyper vigilant on the job, like whether the job is sex work or binning or whatever. Um, and then it's an, an adaptation to something that's happened. And this is a lot different than the other explanations we tend to hear, which are that there's a, you know, that you have some kind of a brain disease, you know, some chronic relapsing brain disease. So the those explanations are like the problems in you, you're, you're sick, you have a disease, not that the problems in the broader society and the way it's organized. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the work that I've done, for example, with folks who are, are doing recycling or, um, you know, reselling other goods who are, you know, really at that bottom rung of the labor market in that kind of gray area where there's no labor protections. The work is really fucking hard. Stimulants 
methamphetamine especially come along and are something that can give a jolt of energy that can help someone get through their day and engage in the work that they need to be able to do to survive. Yeah, we uh, we rode along with uh, Sean Dope as he did a, a few hours of binning the other night. And, um, you know, you could tell he told us his side was hurting. And I, I believe it, you know, he's, um, you know, he's like middle-aged like me and he was jumping in and out of the bins and everything like that. I, when he was doing that, I just thought, oh, fuck, I'm glad I don't have to jump in there with a microphone with him or something, you know, like it's, it's a lot of work climbing around and sorting everything out on the, on the pavement, which is going to be often cold and wet. And he did stop and, you know, recharge a little bit of artificial energy to get through the rest of the evening. So, I mean, we've, we've definitely seen that. Yeah. And, if we take one step back from that, one of the things that I, I think we really need to, to more acknowledge is there are so many people who are failed and left behind by how all of society is organized, who are put in positions where they're, they're doing work that's unsafe, that's grueling, while dealing with you know injury, chronic pain, and disability. We'd have people who were effectively being thrown away by society. So being thrown away by a capitalist society, then recycling the uh, the garbage of late stage capitalism, you know, in an incredibly unequal city, that people's trash was being recycled f- to help people survive was just so striking and, and such a sad fucking commentary on, on how we live, you know, in that context. You know, meth use makes a hell of a lot of sense if it lets you get through the day. People often use drugs to adapt to brutal economic conditions. And so long as the world keeps getting more brutal, this ain't likely to stop. We need safe supply. Not just fentanyl or heroin, but coke and meth too. Everything's contaminated now. And the government just doesn't seem to care. So on Wednesday, a group of drug user activists set up tables and gave out free drugs. The Drug User Liberation Front and the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users distributed heroin, coke, and side. Yup. 100% methamphetamine, no cut, no buff, all tested for contaminants with an FTIR spectrometer, all handed out in front of the cop shop. Of course, this is illegal as hell. We know the drug war won't end overnight, and until it does, we just got to adapt. Crackdown is made on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I'm going to talk about something for a minute, uh, so just a warning, especially if your families survive residential schools. This month, Crackdown's editorial board is thinking of all the Indigenous children 
who were snatched up by the RCMP and forced to live in residential schools. These were really prison camps run by religious fundamentalists contracted by the Canadian state. Many of these children never came home. Many were buried in unmarked graves, over a thousand of which have been found recently on the sites of former residential schools. And there will be more. I think about my niece and nephews. Their Musham was abducted to a residential school in Manitoba. He was a Red Road East Van legend. Residential school trauma transmits down the generations like electricity. This is no dark chapter of Canadian history like politicians say. It's the whole fucking book, right up to the present page. And there is a direct line from residential schools to the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in coroner's overdose death stats. There's a 24-hour residential school crisis line at 1-866-925. 4419. Thanks this month to JJ Rigsby at Vandu and Trey Helton for walking us through this topic. Thanks as well to Sean Dope. Additional thanks to Brianne Deman of the Binners Project, as well as Richard Henry and Ken Leotier of United We Can. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess. Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray and Sharice Kiwaden. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alex DeBoer, Dania Fast, Ryan McNeil, and me, Garth Mullins. Sound design by Alexander Kim. Original score was written and performed by me, James Ash, Sam Fenn, and Kai Paulson. Stay safe and keep six. You must, you must find yourself thinking of Prince all the time when you hang out with me, like a talkative, amphetamine-fueled, super-hot guy. This is, <laughs> this is the first time that I've tried to make that comparison. Just, you know, the char- charisma, too, and the you know, confidence, you know. The, the savviness, the world, the world kind of wary. Kind of- Actually, you have a confidence in yourself and your ability to do things that you don't know how to do yet that he also had. Oh, yeah? Right, so it's just like... He was always like, oh, how hard could it be? Oh, we'll figure it out. Oh, don't worry about it. He'd be like, oh, Garth, you worry about things too much. Don't, just, just don't worry about it. We'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sometimes. He he wasn't the kind of guy who came up with fucking five-year plans and shit like you do, you know? (laughs)